Hey, good morning, Gretna family. It's Pastor Rob. It's so great to see you today. Uh, I have a list of things that I really wish I would have known in my 20s when I was when I was younger. I, I really wish I would have known some things. And, and, and let me give you my short list, and I'm sure there's a more. But the first one is this, to save some money early. To save some money early, that makes a huge difference later, something that as I get closer and closer to that magical retirement age, although it seems to keep moving further away too, um, I'm reminded that I should have probably put aside some more money earlier. Probably would be a whole lot easier now. Number two, I wish I would have known my college major isn't a or wasn't a lifetime commitment to a career. I wish I would have known that I was choosing something that I could make a living in and enjoy doing, but recognizing I probably wouldn't be doing it forever. I see a lot of our high school kids when they go off to college, if that's what they're called to do. And again, maybe I wish I would have known that or felt like college wasn't a thing that had to happen. It was just kind of something everybody in my school did. Um, But I watch them go off to college thinking they're making this major choice about something that's going to take them the rest of their lives. They're going to do forever in a day. And the truth is, in our day and age, as fast as careers change or and job descriptions change, requirements change, the truth is very few people stay in a certain field their entire working lives, right? So I, I wish I would have known that because I've clearly changed a couple of times now. <laughs> Number three, I really wish I knew that the friends that I surrounded myself with would affect my feelings and my attitudes and even my perspectives more than I realized at the time. I wish I would have been cognizant of that. Number four, I, I wish I realized it was okay to make mistakes and fail. To, to take risks to move forward means sometimes you're going to risk and make mistakes. You're going to fail. And I've come to believe that if you're not failing ever or you're not making a mistake ever, you may not be taking enough risks, uh, whether that be in your faith or your job or whatever the case may be. Once in a while, if you're trying to move forward, you're going to fail, and that's okay. Number five, I wished, <laughs> I wished I had learned not to worry so much about what others think, about what kind of perceptions or expectations I feel like I have to live up to. Now, there's a certain amount of that, especially about the people that you care about. I, I do think there's value in in considering how others see you, those people that are closest to you, that love you very much. They're often very good judges of who you are, of your character. Sometimes they're better judges of ourselves, of us, than we are of ourselves. <laughs> so it, it's important, but not to let it drive the direction we take. We, we like to think that teenagers do that a lot with peer pressure, but as we get older, it goes away. That's, that's just not true. That's not how we're wired. Most importantly, I wish I'd known earlier that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And I wish I had established a relationship with him sooner. That is the most important thing I wish I would have known early on. But there is one other thing. There's something else that I think I think maybe we know in our 20s that we kind of don't really appreciate until we get a little bit older. Um, and that's, that's the fact that you can't turn back time. You can't 
unsay or undo something you wish you hadn't done. You can't say or go back and say or do something you wish you had done. Um, you can't make different relationships or job choices. They've already happened, right? Time keeps moving forward and seemingly faster. It moves forward as we get older. As we continue to study it, our, our study in the book of Luke this week, um, we're going to listen to another unique story in Luke's gospel, one in which this reality of time always moving forward and that you can't turn the clock back and can't redo some things in your life um, is so, so true. So let's jump in. We're going to go to Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. We're going to read it in a little in, in two pieces. We're going to do first, we're going to do verses 19 through 21. And it's the story of the rich man and Lazarus. It may say that in your Bible or on your app right now. I'm going to read out of the CSB. It says this it says, There was a rich man who would dress in purple and fine linen, feasting lavishly every day. But a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, was lying at his gate. He longed to be filled with what fell from the rich man's table, but instead, the dogs would come and lick his sores. We learn a lot about this rich man in, in just in a couple of verses, right? We, we learn that he feasts lavishly every day. I like to watch this guy on YouTube. His name is Guga. He does Guga Foods, and he also does sous vide everything, which I, I would love to learn to sous vide. I think it would be fun. But um, he makes it a point to do a couple of things. One, to try to take lower quality meats, especially steak. He loves beef. Um, and make them great. How good can you make them? But, but, but he also uh, uses Wagyu on a regular basis. And Wagyu is considered by most to be the creme de la creme day of, of beef. It, it technically means Wagyu means Japanese cow. It's a Japanese raised cow. It has copious marbling um, that almost melts is my understanding. I've never had it. And kind of this buttery flavor to it. It costs like $200 a pound. Right, So this rich man, the picture we're getting of him, of him feasting lavishly, he ate like this every day. That's kind of the vibe, is that he's eating Wagyu, and he's eating the greatest sides. It's almost, it's almost like having Thanksgiving every day, where you've got a spread to choose from. We also know that he has a huge home with a gate in front of it. He has his own personal gate. It says that in verse 20, that that's where Lazarus was lying. And so he's safe and secure in this home of his that he has, I would guess, built for himself or, or inherited from his family. You know, we love to be secure in our homes. I think that's one of the greatest values we have of our homes. And if you've ever been in someone's shoes like Lazarus or known someone like that, the missing a home, not having a place to call your own is a frightening thing. It is... It is it really twists around your whole scope of the world, how you see the world. And it can make you not just homeless, but also hopeless very, very quickly. And we will go to great lengths. Maybe most of us probably don't have a gate in front of our house, but, you know, ring doorbells and security systems are more and more prevalent each and every day. The church here has cameras all over the place, inside and out. Um... And, and, and many of us have purchased firearms for the sake of defending our homes and our families. Those, that's valuable to us, and this rich man has the same. He's eating incredibly well every day, and he has this nice, safe 
protected home. He feels safe and secure with each and every day of his life. He also, we see that he's wearing purple and fine linen, that idea of linen. Linen is made from, in this case, an Egyptian flax. It's Egyptian flax plant fibers is, is where it comes from. It's delicate. It's soft. It's Most of the time, it's, it's a stark white. It's been bleached a stark white. And if it begins to yellow over time, if you're rich, you get rid of it and, and buy new. It has to look good all the time. The point is that this man has been blessed with much. And he didn't often, if ever, get his hands dirty. Right? I think sometimes the obvious correlation here is that sometimes we forget just how much we are blessed with. No, we most of us, in fact, the vast majority of us, don't eat lavishly every day. But we eat okay. right? We have access to food and we have access to clothing and shelter and transportation and and cell phones, communication capacity. We have access to medical care. And at a time when this was written, and the truth is in much of the world still, those aren't givens. And we are very, very, very blessed to have them. Would I say that we are the rich man in this parable? Not exactly, but there are definitely some some parallels that we sometimes forget, sometimes forget in the midst of the life that we live. But I want to focus on for a second this color, the color of his clothes. It says it's purple and fine linen. That's kind of this, the picture we're, we're seeing is this purple and white clothing. Purple was significant because the purple dye that was used was taken from mollusks that were only found in the Mediterranean near the city of Tyre. It's the only place you could find them. And it took about 900 of those mollusks to, or I'm sorry, I missed a zero, 9,000 of those mollusks to produce one gram of this purple dye. It was often used by the very, very wealthy and often signified royalty. In fact, as Jesus was being tortured and led to the cross, he was sarcastically given a purple robe because he had been declared the king of the Jews and they were mocking him for it because that's the purple that kings wore. The rich man, really in some ways sees himself as that, as really the king of his life and in charge of his own destiny. The poor man, on the other hand, instead of being clothed with robes, is clothed essentially with sores. He's got open sores all over him. And it's a purposely gruesome picture because the author, Luke, wants us to understand just how bad this man has got it. And also the idea that the dogs would would come by and lick his sores. Dogs were considered utterly unclean animals. And in many ways, I don't blame them. I've seen some of the things that my dog eats and I I get nervous every time she tries to lick me, which thankfully is rarely because I'm going, I've seen where your mouth has been and no, right? But they're considered unclean, meaning just the mere touch of them made him, every time they licked, made him less, made Lazarus less and less clean, less and less holy, less and less valuable and valid to the people of God. We see that this poor man slept not in a secure home, but outside on the gates. He slept on the ground. He's homeless. He's got no security. He's broken, likely, as we just talked about a little earlier. We see that he isn't eating lavishly, that he's begging for scraps, begging each and every day. And instead, he's providing salt and wounds and salt and things and fluids 
from his own wounds for the dogs that are around him. That's mind-boggling to us. There's something else, though. Unlike the rich man, the poor man, in this, in this parable told by Jesus, and I want to clarify something, there's some debate because of what I'm about to tell you as to whether or not this is a parable or an actual story that's something that Jesus was recounting for all to hear that he had seen happen. And Jesus could have seen some of these things we're about to read about happen where the rest of us couldn't. But the important fact here is that Jesus never names the rich man, but he gives the poor man the name. He gives the poor man the name Lazarus. Jesus rarely used names in parables. In fact, this is one of the only occasions where he does, which leads some scholars to think that these are events that he actually witnessed and saw. So what what did he see? Well, let's keep going. It's, we're going to read verses 16 through 31. It says this, I'm sorry, 22 to 31. It says, One day the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and he was buried. And being in torment in Hades, he took up, he looked up and saw Abraham a long way off with Lazarus at his side. Father Abraham, he called out, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this flame. Son, Abraham said, and I think it's powerful that he still calls him son. He says, son, remember that during your life you received your good things just as Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here while you are in agony. Besides all this, a great chasm has been fixed between us and you so that those who want to pass over from here to you cannot, and neither can those from there cross over to us. Father, he said, then I beg you, send him to my father's house because I have five brothers to warn them so that they will also won't come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. But he told them, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. Living 2,000 years after Jesus did just that, rose from the dead, he was absolutely accurate. There are many that still do not believe the stories, the things that he told, even the, even those that, that, that were eyewitnesses as they communicated the stories, others would say, no, that, that couldn't have happened. But, but death, right, death that the, both the rich man and the poor man share has been uh, known over the years by some as the great equalizer, right? The, the reality is we all pass on. The writer of Ecclesiastes says this in chapter 9, verse 2. He says, everything is the same for everyone. There is one fate for the righteous and for the wicked, for the good and for the bad, for the clean and for the unclean, for the one who sacrifices and the one who does not sacrifice. The end of the day we are going to leave this physical realm, period. It is a reality of life. Modern days, we might say there are two certainties in this world, death and taxes. And to my knowledge, unless you know something I don't know, there's no way to get around that, that reality that our physical body is going to die. Jesus makes it clear in this parable, though, that this is not 
a new message. This is not a new message at all. He, he refers back to Moses and the prophets. He says, this is an old message. I've been telling you this all along, right? I've been telling you that it that to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God, Micah 6, 8, is all I'm calling for from you. And, and he's described justice as caring for the widows, the poor, the orphans, those who cannot care for themselves in some way, shape, or form, regardless of the infirmities that they have. I've told you that's what, that's what justice looks like to me, is watching out for them and caring for them. This is not new. But As we read on in the story, we saw that though all of us are going to pass to the other side, two things. One, what we do in this life affects what happens in the next. And not all eternities are created equal. So what exactly did this rich man do well he didn't really do anything to lazarus we see that he we don't see anywhere in the story where he um had lazarus removed from in front of his gate he clearly left him there and walked by him on a regular basis he didn't outwardly object to lazarus eating scraps from his table once he was finished with them and he he wasn't as far as we know deliberately cruel to him the warning isn't that he did wrong things the warning is that he did nothing he didn't help. It's similar to another story that's unique to Luke. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. We're not going to cover it in this series because it's if you're going to pick a story that's unique to Luke, that's one of the most well-known, it's probably that one. But if you've not read it, it's Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And it's, it's the story of a man who is lying on the side of the road. He's a Jewish man. And various other Jews go by him. And for whatever reason, they're too busy or they're concerned it'll mess up their day or whatever it is, they choose to ignore him. But someone who happens to be a Samaritan, as we discussed early on, an enemy of the Jews, a Samaritan stops to help. A Samaritan does something, right? These other men just ignore him. They do something. And, and Jesus tells his disciples that this is, this is so important it's so important to care for what Jesus would call the least of these. If we go to a different gospel in Matthew chapter 25, verse 45, it says, whatever you did not do for the least of these, you did not do for me. It's as though he's equating whether or not we're helping those who are in need with whether or not we are reaching out to him, the carrier of the Imago Dei. And I think that's important for us to understand, the Imago Dei being the image of God. What the rich man did not do was treat Lazarus as someone who was equally made in the image of God. That's a challenge for all of us, right? Because we're, we're very egocentric. We just are. The world may not physically, literally revolve around each of us, but our personal worlds sometimes do or in the case of the rich man here his little kingdom right the world around him revolves around him his perceptions of the world are his how he reacts to them are his and and we're all kind of that way we're kind of myopic we don't see everyone else maybe or definitely as we should even the people we love the most do we always treat them as we would want to be treated do we always love them as god loves us. And that's a tall order to be sure, but it is the order, 
and it is the expectation. So as they move into this afterlife, we see the script is flipped, right? We see that, that as Jesus would also say in Matthew chapter 20, he would say the last will be first and the first will be last. We see that. We see that the rich man has, well, frankly, he's in hell. He's in Hades and he is in agony. It's everything that it's been described as, right? And Lazarus, Lazarus, who in life had nothing, who died unclean by the world's standards, unclean, unholy, and utterly helpless. We read nothing that he did specifically that made him deserve glory. And yet in death, he has everything. Why? Why? Well, I might have suggest that Lazarus had, by virtue of his circumstances in some ways, learned to live in the in the utter reliance on God. He had learned to, and in some ways been forced to, but learned to trust God because he had no other choice. It's that level of reliance and humility that is so hard to come by, but so necessary in our walk with God and is often the difference maker. You know, we sometimes try to make um, this feel like a matter of good versus evil, right? If you're good, you go to heaven. If you're evil, you go to hell, right? I don't know that that's so much the case. As my wife is often fond of saying, and I agree 100%, it's often a matter of humility versus proud. If you're humble and humbly sitting at the feet of Jesus and allowing him to direct, him to encourage, if you trust him in all things, then you are able to move into this next life with him. But if you're too proud to allow him to do that, if you have to build your own little kingdom and do your own little thing, I know that's something I struggle with on a regular basis, right? Doing things the way I want to do them, even though Jesus would have taught me otherwise, would have done differently. And as I read the scriptures, I see that he's calling me to be more forgiving than maybe I want to be. He's calling to me me to be more generous than sometimes I want to be either. And he's calling me to stop and to see others as he sees them, even if it's not what I want to do, not what I naturally do. And sometimes it's just flat inconvenient. I don't think that matters to him. That type of humility is is so essential. Luke would later, later write about Paul saying that in Acts chapter 27. He would, the position that we are intended to have with God is this, for in him we live and move and have our being. That means in the Lord, we live and move and have our being. He is the sum total of how we exist, right? And even as some poets have said, for we are also his offspring. We are his children. We are made in his image. The book of Genesis makes that abundantly clear. And Lazarus is also seen here standing with Abraham. Now, keep in mind, this is written before Jesus died on the cross, right? This story took place as he's telling it. It's, there is no understanding of Jesus having died on the cross for the audience that he's speaking to. And so for them, the epitome of what it means to be next to God is Abraham, or is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the fathers of their faith. And so to have Abraham standing here is tantamount to them to be standing next to God himself in so many ways. Not literally, but about as close as you can get and still live. <laughs> the idea would be that 
by being there, he has been given everything that every Jewish man, and, and frankly, all of us as followers of Christ, hope for, right? This eternity with him. And it's Abraham's humility that is what was credited to him as righteousness before God. In fact, it says that in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, it says, Abraham believed the Lord. He trusted him. He was humble. And he created it and credited it to him as righteousness. And he credited it to him as righteousness. It wasn't because Abraham was perfect or did all the right things or said all the right things. It was because he allowed to, whenever he could get himself out of his own way, because that's our problem most of the time, to allow God to direct his life. As we alluded to before, where Lazarus relied on God and Abraham relied on God and Paul learned to rely on God, the rich man relied on himself and on the things that he had built. And, and that's a very, very tempting thing to do because it gives us the illusion, and it is exactly that. It is an illusion, the illusion of control, right? That we somehow control our own destiny. But when it's all said and done, we really don't in so many ways. It's God who controls our destiny. He's the one who determines whether or not we're going to be with him and we're not. Now, the irony is that's our choice. We have a choice to be with him for eternity or to be separated from him for eternity. That, I guess, in some ways... We do determine our own destiny, but the irony is we determine our own destiny by laying our will before the feet of God and letting him write the story. So how do we cultivate this kind of utter reliance on God, the kind that Lazarus clearly had and that made all the difference in the world and it made it possible for him to endure living with sores all over his body and living next to the living on outside of a gate on the street and and begging for food each and every day of his life it's what allowed him to get through was that he ultimately trusted that god would fulfill his promises that god was faithful that god would carry him through not just in this life but forever through all eternity how do we cultivate that in our lives because I don't know about you, but I would much rather when I pass on, <laughs> I would much rather be in the position Lazarus is in than this unnamed rich man standing next to my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in heaven for all of eternity. So how do we cultivate that? The first one is this, pray. We say it over and over and over again, but I, I want to give it a caveat. Pray specifically in such a way that reminds you audibly out loud how much bigger God is than anything you're facing in this world and how much better God's way is than our own, how much bigger God is than anything we're going to face in the world and how much better God's way is than our own way, than what we would design. Jesus, when he tells his disciples how to pray, he says, this is how you pray, right? He says, our father who is in heaven, holy is your name or hallowed be thy name, depending on which which translation you're using. But the point is, it's, hey, right out of the gate, the first thing I'm going to say is, Lord, you're amazing. Lord, you are so good. You are so faithful. You are so strong. You are the 
embodiment of love. You are all of the things that I could ever want in my life, and you are the purveyor of all things. And as we were just studying in the book of Job in another another part of my life with some teenagers, <laughs> um, there's a section in Job chapter 42 where he says, everything under the heavens is mine, right? So that's that's the reminder as, as he's praying, hey, remember everything, everything, everything is God's. You are bigger and greater than anything I could possibly imagine. And it's important for us to remind ourselves that because our problems can pretty quickly feel bigger than God if we don't remind ourselves of that truth. Our feelings, sometimes they lie, bottom line. The second thing is to choose to trust him, but start small. Trust him that he will help you in a, in a test, on an exam. Trust you that trust him that he will help you find the right parking spot at the mall. I know, as silly as that sounds, and as petty as that might feel, the truth is, if we learn to trust him in the small things, we can begin to trust him with the big things. It's a building process because I'm learning to trust him instead of me instead of my own devices. And in order to do that, we've got to put ourselves in a position where we have to, where we have to, or we need to, but it starts with choosing to. The third thing is to practice obedience. If you're reading God's word, our hope here at Gretna is that we're encouraging people to read God's word every day. Um, Not just tuning in for a message here on a Sunday, um, I'm blessed by that. I'm glad you. I'm glad you're here. But there's something powerful about absorbing it yourself, about chewing on it yourself each and every day, and making it a habit in your life. But the the important part also is to do what it says, right? To adhere to what it says, to change things. If the Word of God, which it does, says it's not good to be a drunkard, it's not good to be somebody who's drunk all the time. That's a change. That God is calling you to make if that's a challenge you have. If God is calling you to guard your eyes and to carefully monitor what comes in to capture every thought so that, that you are considering only the things of God, then, then which by the way it does, <laughs> then we need to start actually working on doing that. It's not simply a, a matter of, oh, that's a good idea. I think that's pretty cool. <laughs> we have to actually practice adhering to it. And again, I use the word practice on purpose because it's not an easy switch. It's not like flipping a switch and saying, I'm going to forget everything I already knew and I'm just going to do it the way he wants it done. It takes a minute for our hearts and our heads to line up and be moving the same direction. It takes a minute for habits to be built and our lives to be changed, but it takes a commitment to practicing learning to be obedient to what he's calling us to whether that be a, cha- a way, a change in the way we live our lives or a change in the way we see others, right? That was the rich man's problem. He didn't see others as having the image of God within them and, and reminding ourselves as we encounter each and every person that we are all created in the image of God, that we are all sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God, and that while we were still sinners, Christ came and loved us enough to die for us on a cross. That's, that's, that's not just me or the people that I'm super close to. That's every human being that has ever or will ever walk this earth. And that's important. 
especially when we're mad at somebody, right? Number four, renew our minds. Remind ourselves that our goal is to be less of me and more of him. Trans, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, it says in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. It, it's learning to find joy not in my own pursuits, but in God's pursuits, in God's mission, what he's calling me to. It's not insignificant in our story today that at the, his, the, the rich man's last plea is for Abraham to send, some, send Lazarus back to tell his brothers to warn his family right? Wouldn't we love to be able to go back and warn our family of something before it happens? And he says, no, you, you can't do that. You can't turn back the clock. You can't turn back time. You can't go back and do that. And the truth is, the, I provided for you the information. I gave them what they needed to understand the truth is, me, you and me, as we're watching this, if you're a follower of Christ, he's given you the message that the world needs to hear. Yes, your friends and your family, maybe the people that make you nervous that you try to avoid, the people at work, the people you meet at the grocery store, it's that important. And you will, if you miss an opportunity to speak life, to speak the gospel, to tell them of who Jesus is, here and now, the truth is that chance, that opportunity may not come around again. And there is no way to go back and say, God, can you send somebody back to tell them, warn them, please? We're the warning bell. It's, it's our job to tell others what's going on, <laughs> to tell others what's at stake here, and to let them know they are loved by the Lord and Savior, and all they have to do is choose to follow him. The last one I'm going to throw at us is fasting. Fasting, fasting, fasting. It's a, it's a foreign word for many of us. But there are two things that Jesus makes clear as spiritual disciplines during the Sermon on the Mount. He says prayer and fasting. Prayer, when you pray and when you fast. There, He phrases them and uses them and lives them out in the scriptures as necessary parts of their walk with God, of his walk with God. And it should be of ours as well because it gives us an opportunity to be without as small as it is, whether it be missing a single meal or missing a day or two days. Jesus fasted for, prayed and fasted for 40 days. I'm not recommending that one. That's a little dangerous unless you're under the care of a doctor and you know what you're doing. I would work up to that. <laughs> but the concept of fasting puts us in a position where we need, we're beginning to practice relying on God for the small stuff relying on him to carry us through missing a meal or missing two, relying on him to provide for us. And when you, when you fast, or when I fast too, when we fast, we have to do so with a purpose. And I think that purpose is to choose to seek God, seek God in those times when we would be eating or seek God in those times when we are hungry, right? Lift up his name in prayer. We discussed that that praying earlier, right? Being purposeful and focused on reminding ourselves how great our God is and how much he provides our daily bread and how much he cares for us, even though we lose sight of it sometimes. Focused on 
on the opportunities that he provides for us to spread the gospel or to be his hands and feet in the world and opportunities to have courage where we maybe didn't before. When we pray and when we fast, and yes, they go hand in hand, it gives us an opportunity to clear our minds of the things that sometimes separate us from God and that sometimes what separates us is ourselves. So there's five things that we leaned into here on cultivating an utter reliance on God. The first is this, to pray. Pray with purpose, reminding ourselves how much bigger and better God is than anything else. Choosing to trust him in the small stuff. Practicing obedience. Renewing our minds to be focused on the things of God rather than ourselves. And fasting. Fasting with purpose recognizing that he is ultimately the only provision we really need for our eternity. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and he be gracious to you. May he grant you favor and may he give you peace. God bless.